He's at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership behavior and competency. His book, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of the century with over 700,000 copies sold and 1,000-plus five-star reviews on Amazon. His most recent book, The Advice Trap, focuses on what it takes to stay curious a little bit longer and tame your advice monster. In 2019, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching and was shortlisted for the Coaching Prize by Thinkers 50, the Oscars of Management. He's the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from advice-driven to curiosity-led, and the host of the fabulous Cocktails and Questions virtual social gatherings. He left Australia nearly 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, Join us on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast on Curiosity Led with my friend, Michael Bungay Stanier. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. I'm excited to be the co-host of the Tech Sales Insights Podcast with longtime client, friend, founder, and CEO of the sales community, Randy Seidel. I met Randy back in 2008 when I spoke at the Sun Microsystems annual sales meeting in Las Vegas. He sat in the front row, and I distinctly remember he came up to me afterwards, and he said, I never do this, and I just took two pages of notes. We've since worked together on multiple engagements when he moved to HP. We've visited with our respective families. I've even attended his tailgate party at the Holy Game between Boston College and Notre Dame. Don't even get me started with his Patriots beating up on our Falcons. That's a deep wound. He's launched a sales community for tech sales professionals, managers, chief revenue officers, sales executives. Every week, we're interviewing sales leaders on how they're thinking and leading differently, not just amid this pandemic, but really thinking about beyond it. If you're in technology sales, the sales community is your place to learn, grow, and network with other amazing professionals. Learn more at salescommunity.com slash podcast. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of the Curvebenders podcast. My guest today is a friend, a colleague, someone I admire for above and beyond what he's done, the the genuine environment of curiosity and questioning and uh, discussions he creates. I want to welcome Michael Bungay 
Stanier, Mike MBS, as I call him. Welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. David Noor, I'm happy to be here. Great to have you. So, you know, Michael, for those who may not know as much about you, your background, can you talk a little about where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived here? How is it possible that somebody, anybody could not know who I am? But okay, we'll work on the hypothesis. That's true. I'm, I'm joking, of course. So, look, I'm best known for a book called The Coaching Habit. It came out about four years ago and really kind of took that niche part of the world, a book about how to be a more better coach or more coach-like. By Storm, it's sold close to a million copies now. So that's what I'm best known for. But if you kind of do a quick rewind, I'm Australian, left Australia almost 30 years ago to be a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, which was brilliant for two reasons. First of all, it plucked me off the becoming a lawyer track because I wouldn't have been, I would have been a very inadequate, unhappy lawyer I mean, suffice to say, I actually left my Australian law school being sued by one of my law school lecturers for defamation. So that just shows you how well that wasn't working. <laughs> um, and when I got to Oxford, I actually also met Marcella, who is my wife, and we've been married for close to 30 years now. Uh, so two really great results from going to Oxford. Because I'd met Marcella, I didn't head back to Australia, so I got a job in England in the world of innovation and creativity, so helping invent products and services for, for companies and organizations. I played a very minor role in the invention of stuffed crust pizza for Pizza Hut, which, which was actually a moment where I went, I have to change this job because I do not want that to be the highlight of my life. You know, I <laughs> contributed to a minor line extension for Pizza Hut. So I moved into the world of organizational change and organizational development. You know, how do you, how do you make stuff work and evolve in organizations? How do you help people thrive in organizations? And that took me over to Boston and I lived and worked in Boston for a while, which was awesome for my wife because she's a Boston Bruins hockey fan. So she loved that. And then about 20 years ago, moved up to Toronto, started my own company called Box of Crayons and that evolved to being a training company that is focused on, well, as we now put it, helping organizations move from advice-driven to curiosity-led. And at the heart of that is an expertise in helping managers and leaders be more coach-like. I love that. Advice-driven to curiosity-led. So mm -hmm. your most recent book is Advice Trap. Give, give mm -hmm. the audience the key nuggets from that. Sure. So Part of the success of the coaching habit was it made coaching unweird. It said, look, here are seven good questions. And if you build those into your everyday conversations, it can make all the difference. And, you know, even to this day, I get regular emails and notes from people going, it's fantastic. I just started using the seven questions. And honestly, things change and they change for the better, not just for my team, but with my boss, with my peers, with my kids, with my spouse. Things get better when you're a little bit more curious. But I also got notes from people going, hey, look, your book's good. <laughs> I like it. You're funny. It's simple. It's a fast, easy read. And I haven't changed my behavior. I am still finding that I have this reflexive leap to giving advice. Even though I kind of know better intellectually, as soon as somebody starts talking, I feel like I've got an answer to tell them. <laughs> What's going on with that? Why is it so hard to change my behavior? And that's what the advice trap is really about. It's not about don't give advice because that's ridiculous. I mean, we're doing a podcast that is laden with advice. So it's, there's nothing wrong with advice per se. The advice trap 
is when your default response is leaping into giving advice and offering suggestions and having opinions and thinking that you know best. And what I'm trying to do is to slow down the rush to action and advice giving and have people stay curious a little bit longer. And the advice trap really has at its heart this challenge to learn how to tame your advice monster. I get it. I get what you're struggling with. Let me tell you or let me jump in with how let's fix it. I do it with my wife. I do it with clients. You do so, it with me. I don't even know I, you. And you're like, Michael, you just call me up and go, I've got some suggestions for you. Like, I'm, who the hell are you? <laughs> <laughs> so so what's the, what's the key? How do you hold back? And I love that. How do you stay intentionally in that phase of curiosity, in that you know, discovery and experimentation mode before you jump to action and advice and ideas? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things to it. The first is just to realize and acknowledge that actually your advice doesn't always work. And I think there's three ways your advice goes bad. Here's the first thing. The first challenge is that you're often trying to solve the wrong problem. You think that the, the, the challenge that they've come to you with or the challenge that you perceive is the real challenge. And quite frankly, it almost never is. At the start of a conversation, really, neither you nor they know what the real challenge is. You know, obviously, sometimes you do. It's like, where's my car keys? That's, that's the challenge. But for anything a bit more complex than that most basic transactional uh, issue, you often don't know what the real challenge is. So you're busily solving the wrong problem. Then there's a second challenge, because let's say that you do know what the real problem is. You figure that out. This is the nut you have to crack. The second challenge with your advice is to realize that your advice is just not as good as you think it is. And for all of the people listening in going, look, Michael, you don't even know who I am. And quite frankly, my advice is outstanding. Look, we have these things called cognitive biases that are just part of the way we are wired that makes us think that our advice is always better than it is. And there's even a cognitive bias that's about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the, the blunt way of putting it is this, stupid people are too stupid to realize that they're stupid. And how that plays out in our lives is the more confident you are about your advice, quite often, the worse your advice actually is. And that's backed up by a ton of research. So second thing is just you, you, you overweight how good your, your advice actually is. Then the third piece, and this is really the critical thing for people to hear, which is let's just say, for the sake of argument, that not only do you know what the real challenge is, but you have a stonkingly good piece of advice to offer up. I mean, really, you've got, you've got a solution that is really terrific. The third way advice goes wrong is it is the wrong act of leadership in that moment. Because really, you're at a crossroads, a crossroads where one action is give them the answer, give them the advice, tell them the solution. And sure, there are some short-term wins in that. And it might be the appropriate thing to do, which is like, hey, you get them the answer. It's a good answer. You get them out of their life and onto the thing that they need to be doing. But you've got a second option, which is this, which is to say, look, even though I know the answer, what if I play the role of helping them figure this out themselves rather than being the fast provider of the solution? And then you say just a little bit more time invested in the process 
means that I have somebody who is more engaged, who is becomes more self-sufficient, more autonomous, more competent, more confident, less likely to come back and need you, more likely to be in a relationship that's less needy and actually a little bit healthier. And what I'm inviting people to do is to be aware of that choice and make that choice. Because at the moment, most people default to option A, which is like, hey, I've got an answer. Here's my answer. As opposed to going, what game am I in here? What's the big win here? Is it to give somebody a fast answer or is it to build somebody up so they become better able to do this stuff by themselves and they become closer to the person that they can be in this life? I've long believed that uh, we're, we're all best served if we convey our credibility with the questions we ask. Oh, I love that. Not necessarily the solutions provide, we provide, right? Right. So, I mean, the confidence and the degree of self-awareness and, and just status to be able to go, hey, look, I know the answer and I'm so confident in myself, I don't even need to give it yet. You're, you're, there's a safety net. I mean, you don't. You can you can promise yourself that you're not going to let that person leave the conversation without a good solution. So it's not like you're 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 gambling everything and the ship's going to sink unless you provide the answer right away. It's just saying, can I slow down the rush to action and advice giving? So I love that, David. I think you're spot on, which is you actually reflect higher status by the smartness of your questions rather than the quickness of your answers. One of the coolest uh, experiences for me in the last uh, 10 weeks has been, interestingly enough, early on, you launched this idea of cocktails and questions. Yeah. And for our audience, uh, describe what it is, describe where it came from. And then I want to really talk about what are, are there some common threads you're hearing from the very diverse audience that shows up at these things about what's happening out there. Yeah. So the starting point is that I decided this year that one of my three key themes of how I'd like to show up for this year is to be a host, be a gatherer of good people. And I realized that I have a pretty broad network most of whom I'm not in touch with <laughs> and have fallen out of my kind of constant circle. And it's sad because these are really good people I'd like to spend more time with, but I don't often have an obvious reason to be connecting to these people. I also realize, and you know this research better than I will know, the, the power of weak ties, that it's often not your closest connections that help you through things, but it's the friends of friends that help you get stuff happening in this world and help you increase impact and influence. And I'm like, I have a bunch of weak ties. And wouldn't it be amazing if I could introduce cool people to other cool people? So I started this thing called Cocktails and Questions. It's, you know, I run it roughly three times a week. So, you know, 10, 12 times a month. And the, the whole process is this. I've got about three or 400 people who I know a little bit. And I go, you're, you're a cool person. You're, you're one of those people, no? And I say, this is the process. You, start, you pick a slot, and there are a maximum of six people who can gather for this one-hour meeting, um, me plus five other people. It's, there's serendipity into who shows up and who signs up for what. So, you know, Noor, when you sign up, you don't know who the other four guests are going to be. You just know it's Michael, you, plus some other random people. And then I assign a question per month. Like the question for this month is what seeds are you planting 
and what are you harvesting? And the way it works, just to give people the, the kind of mechanism, is people, we have a little check-in. Who are you? What do you do in this world? What cocktail are you drinking? You know, it doesn't have to be alcoholic. It can be a cup of tea or a glass of water. It doesn't matter. Um, and what are you grateful for? Then each person has five minutes to kind of monologue on the question. You know, it's five minutes space to reflect on the question. The rest of the listeners contribute through the chat box so they can ask questions and offer up encouragement. But the person can keep talking rather than being kind of directed by somebody's verbal question. And then at the end, we check out. And what I find is that you have um, great, great combinations of random people. <laughs> you know, and I love the fact that I'm able to introduce some of the younger people in my life to some of the more established people in my life. Um, that people from you know, South Africa and New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the US and England and France and Switzerland are able to kind of globally connect. And also that the, the structure of that meeting actually carries the weight of the facilitation process. So it feels people, my feedback has been people have felt a deeper vulnerability and a faster connection than they thought they might with basically five strangers in an hour over Zoom. Are there some common threads? I, I love the questions. I want to know where you come up with questions, but also is there <laughs> some common threads between people that show up? Because the couple that I've been to, it is a very diverse group. Yeah. Are, are there some common threads of challenges or opportunities amidst this global pandemic? Well, I'm creating questions that are inviting vulnerability. So the seeds and the harvesting question invite self-reflection and vulnerability. You know, some of the questions before that are what crossroad are you at? Last month, I think, was where's your learning edge? Where are you, what are you learning about yourself and about the world and about your business and about your life? And there's this invitation to be self-reflective. So it's curated in a way that encourages that. And honestly, you know, the, the key thing is, I'd say broadly that we all feel that we're at crossroads. <laughs> No, it's it's these these human truths that it's just so helpful to hear from other people, which is like, we're all making this stuff up. <laughs> we're all trying to take a guess as to what the future is. We're all gathering. Uh, we're all leaning into people for help uh, or seeing the power of people for help or missing that we don't have the help that we might ask for. And if there's a common thing that comes through this, which is um, actually one of the guests from last week or this week wrote to me, she said, it's be brave, be kind and take your best shot. You know, I remember when you've come on, you're like, let me tell you some of the cool stuff that I'm up to. And you, you are, uh, you know, you're just, you've got this entrepreneurial spirit, which is like, I'm going to, I'm going to do stuff. I'm writing books. I've got this project happening or this project happening or this software project happening. You are, you role model a courage and a willingness to step into the world and experiment. Other people, you know, there's a, a, a colleague we both know who runs a big, a big training company where a huge percentage of their income is based around conferences and, and in-person gatherings. So part of it for her is, is just the journey of trying to think, can they pivot in time? Will they survive? Can they get through this? <laughs> you know, I, I launched a podcast not long ago called We Will Get Through This and I think that's the theme that keeps coming out, which is a question around, we will get through this, but how we get through this will change us. And 
what are we learning about ourselves and our world and what matters in that journey through this challenging upheaval. Why is, why is that vulnerability so important to you? Oh, because I'm just bored with small talk. Like, I, I mean, I'm, I am interested in the messy, brilliant complexity of what it means to be a human being. You know, there's a, a philosopher called Martin Buber, and he has a very simple model, simple but powerful. He says, look, there are, there are really just two types of relationships in this world. There's an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. And an I-it relationship is when you've kind of objectified the other person. You know, you put them into a label, you give them a label, you put them into a role, you put them into this is what you can do for me. And an I-thou relationship is when you see and meet and acknowledge that other person in their full humanity. And to do that, you kind of have to be as connected to your own full humanity as possible. And I know this is sounding probably a bit woo-woo, but you know, one of the one of the things that drives me crazy, Noor, is at the end of at the end of yoga sessions in the West, you know, you do your stretching and your downward dogs and your backward cobras or whatever. And at the end the 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 teacher goes, oh you no, know, hands together and you know, namaste and everybody goes, Namaste. And and of course, in, in India, namaste just means, you know, g'day, how you, how you doing? But it's become this thing in the West that there's this Western translation for this or Western importance to that word, which is, you know, the God in me greets the God in you or the light in me sees the light in you. And it, it drives me nuts in a yoga class, but it actually is what life is about, which is like, do you get to see the other people around you fully? Which allows you to have, which allows you to love them. I think that's uh, sage. Without without jumping into action and advice, but I think that's sage advice for where our country and and uh, and the West is right now in terms of seeing others for the whole person they are and the whole person they bring to work and not just work as part of kind of who you know what they do. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a divisive time. I mean, I'm Canadian. I'm up in Canada, but you know, we have our divisions. The US is obviously pretty pretty strife torn at the moment. And lots lots it's lots of countries have that kind of more obvious divide. You're on this side of the fence, I'm on that side of the fence. I don't see you as a human being anymore. And you've probably seen that Abe Lincoln quote that's going around at the moment which is Something I'll misquote it, but it's something along the lines of "This person irritates the hell out of me. I must get to know him better." So switch gears with me, and let's talk about future of coaching. So if you and I were to visit uh, ten years from now, twenty years from now. What do you believe coaching will look like? How will coaching, you know, executives all the way to front line, be different or evolve? Well, I've been thinking about this quite a bit. You know, I think. Part of what coaching brings is encouragement of the space to hold curiosity. You know, often the ability to ask a great question just creates this, this moment. It doesn't have to be a long moment. It can be like a minute, two minutes, three minutes, where you just are actually forced to think and reflect and kind of create new insights that are the basis for new action. You know, the, the deep philosophy we currently teach at Box of Crayons, this company I started, is, is look, coaching isn't 
at its best, a kind of formal, occasional, you know, hierarchical experience. It's it's something that can happen every day with every person and in every interaction because it's staying curious a little bit longer. And the challenge with coaching is uh, that, well, there are numbers, you know, part of it's like a bunch of people kind of, it comes with baggage. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't want to be a coach. I don't want to be coach-like. I'm not that kind of touchy-feely people person who has time for that. It's a kind of weird HR thing. But I just think what what will happen is in this AI world, we will our our gadgets will come to a place where they will have the capacity to do a certain type of coaching with us, which is, you know, your your gadget will look in your calendar, and your calendar has you book time for working on the the software project. And as you open up your screen, the screen will go, hey, Michael, you're working on the software project. Before you get going, what's the challenge here for you today? And I'll, I'll either write it down with a stylus on the screen or I'll just say, you know, it's probably this. And then the machine will go, great. Yep, that's true. Um, what else is a challenge? And I'll go, oh, it's probably this. And then they'll go, good, is there anything else that's a challenge for you around this project right now? And I'll go, hmm, maybe this as well. And then my machine will go, okay, so you've got three options there. Which of these feels like the thing to be looking at today? What's the real challenge for you right now? And I'll go, oh, okay, it's this. And in that moment, my machine will have spent two minutes setting me up for success on this work because because it doesn't take many good questions that are pretty reliable to create the space to think at the appropriate time. So it's almost like tech-enabled moments to reflect and yeah. think. And, and, and what I also heard from you was not just the challenges, but really allow you to prioritize and focus. Well, I think that's part of what, you know, the context of coaching can have is, you know, there are three, there are three elements to it. And this is a virtuous circle at its best. You know, coaching starts with insight and insight about yourself and insight about the world. And once you have insight, it's about encouraging action because you want to do something differently as a result of that different insight. And with action comes impact. And it's about understanding impact and noticing what's happened. And impact then opens the door for another conversation around insight. What have you learned? What have you learned about you? What have you learned about the world? And then it can kind of feed itself and kind of come back back around on itself. So I think what's trickier for for the future of coaching is one of the things that when you're when you have a, a moment of being really well coached is often you feel heard and you feel seen and you feel acknowledged for being that person and that's a little trickier but you know there's the rise of the the kind of the comfort robots in japan which is old people have helped their loneliness get managed by having robot companions that kind of give them basic interaction and a basic sense of companionability. And it feels to me that that is also opening up a way of that your device can provide a sense of self-recognition. You and I are about the same age. Are you embracing technology? Are you embracing uh, tech-enabled augmenting our thinking? 
I, you know, no, <laughs> not really. You know, I don't, you know, I don't have any smart gadgets in my house. I don't have a Siri or an Alexa. I don't have email on my phone. <laughs> I, you know, I had a flip phone two years ago, which honestly drove me nuts because I'd had a smartphone before. And then I was like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I think one of the luxuries of the future world will be to live in a non-smart world where everything is tracked all the time. And so I, I don't have a, a smart world. But I do think it's the future. <laughs> I know there's a, a paradox there. No, no, I, and I'm, now it got me really curious. Why? Why not email on your phone? Why no, no audio? You know, uh, voice-enabled devices. What, what's what's the thought process? Yeah, I'm making this answer up on the spot, so it may not be true. But here's my best guess at the moment. No, there is some. There, there's a way that. I don't want to rush too quickly into all the things that technology can support me on because I like the act of manually creating. Now, you know, to take a very specific and kind of nerdy thing, I love Text Expander. Text Expander is this fantastic little tool on my machine that when I'm inviting people to be part of a podcast or whatever, I just type in, you know, three letters and the whole invite for the, the, the thing plays out. So there's ways that there's some mechanical stuff that I absolutely lean into. And, you know, even the technology like this, like you and I recording this podcast on Zencaster, and that's what I use for my podcast as well. And it's magical the way that it works. But I love pen and I love paper and I love sketching and I love ideas and I love the sense of journey into the unexplored. And my fear is, I think, again, just making this up on the spot, but I have a probably a, a Luddite fear that too much smart-enabled technology makes me f even lazier <laughs> than I already am, and not in a good way. Uh, you and I spoke about curve benders as uh, relationships that dramatically alter your direction and destination. And, and more recently, I'm thinking a lot about nonlinear learning, nonlinear growth. Can you think about some uh, curve benders, some relationships in your life, Michael, who have dramatically have changed your direction uh, beyond what you've accomplished, who you've become? Yeah. Well, I think that's a really good distinction because I can immediately point to some people in my life who have accelerated success. You know, um, I think of Andrea, who who works for Microsoft, who found my book <laughs> and reached out to me and went, your book's good. Can you do this? And I'm like, yeah. And that led, that's led to a really fulfilling, rewarding, and for, for Box of Crayons, valuable, lucrative relationship as we have put tens of thousands of people in Microsoft through the training that we developed for them. So it absolutely... 10x is my impact in the world and all sorts of great stuff. So Andrew is like a key person that's a curve bender in terms of that kind of business thing like that. And there's, you know, there's been a number of people who have shown up in my life and gone, oh, here is, uh, 
here's a here's a thing um here's a here's an offer and that's been amazing to kind of step through and move through plateaus and in, in business but equally as as thrilling that is as that is it's not the key motivator for me when i think of the curve benders who influenced how i want to be in the world it's often people who role model a way of creating and thinking and being that I aspire to. So, and some of these are people I have a relationship with, and some of them are just just fantasy people I've never met and I'm unlikely to meet. So, for instance, Jack White of White Stripes. I, look, I don't know Jack White, <laughs> and he's unlikely to ever give me a call. But I so admire his ability to create his restlessness to not get stuck in old ways of doing his kind of inherent marketing ability is, you know, his ability to go, I want to, I want to package this in a way that makes it distinct and different and interesting and intriguing for people, but also his seemingly lack of interest in needing to be commercially successful and pander to an audience around that. And, you know, there are just a number of people who have, similar characteristics to that you know it could be bob dylan you know ticks all of those boxes it could be um damon alvin similar it could be uh takiki white tight oh i always get his name wrong um the guy the new zealander who amongst other things directed thor ragnarok these are people who've just influenced me in terms of how they show up in this world they haven't lost their spirit and their sense of maverickness and their sense of play and provocation. That that means a lot to me. And then there are people I've got to know, like I'm thinking of my friend Aaron Dignan, who wrote a book called Brave New Work. And it's a really wonderful articulation of how to build an, any organization that is more human-centric so it doesn't forget that people are the heart of your organization and also complexity aware that, that your, your company is not some machine that you can just pull a lever and something pops out, but it exists within a complex system. You know, these are all people who calling me to be and imagine the best version of myself. You, you talked about curve benders who, who are challenging you who are pushing you to think and, and maybe lead differently. What do you believe it will take to become a great curve bender? How, how do you, not, not incrementally, but profoundly impact the lives of others? I, somebody should write a book about this, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, there's one coming out this fall. <laughs> oh, is that right? Okay, that's a, that's a lucky coincidence. You know what? There's something about embodying the message. So the medium is the message. So you have to, I think, to be a curve bender, you have to have a degree of integrity between your actions and the way that you show up in the world. Or maybe that's just what I want for myself. But I do think I'm, I'm much more persuaded by p how people act than by what they, what they tell me. I think there's also a repetition of a message <laughs> to be a curb bender. It's like you've got to kind of find your, find your lever, find your thing that you care about and, and repeat it a lot. I mean, it's been really, it's really struck me that, you know, the coaching habit, 
you know, sold close to a million copies. I got named the number one thought leader in coaching last year by kind of Marshall Goldsmith and Thinkers 50 and the like. And almost nobody in the coaching world has actually heard of me. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hilarious about how you can be a little bit famous and also almost entirely, totally obscure. So even though on one hand, I've got some labels that make me the, you know, the coaching habits, the best selling coaching book of the century. And most people haven't heard of me in the very narrow niche of coaching. So there's a way to say part of what you do is you keep finding the way to put your message out in the world. So I think it's repetition. And then, nor I think it's also, you've also got to let go a little bit of who hears or doesn't hear your message. I've always said, you know, the passion fuels your purpose. Mm-hmm. And and if your aspiration is to to make a dent and to change change how others think about coaching, you got to yeah. keep keep pushing that. So I, I want to go back to that. You know, if you want to be remembered and repeated, you got to reinforce. I, I absolutely. And, and that reinforcement kind of allows you to, I, I believe, in your own world, become more curious about ideas. And and, and like you have you haven't stopped learning about coaching just because you wrote a. No, that's you know, right. A great book on coaching, and you're going to continue to go and explore that journey. There's also just something about when the you know the saying when the student's ready, the teacher will appear. You know, if you're a curve bender, you're a teacher, but it just means that you don't really. It's not a linear process to find your students. You put your message out, and when they're ready, they'll hear it and they'll come to you around it. I think we get entangled all the time between imagining we can control much more about our life than we can and you know understanding that that classic covey model between what you can control what you can influence and what you can neither control nor influence is one of the great gifts of freedom because it turns out you can control much less than you think you really can control how you show up in the world, how you react, but you can influence far more than you realize. And if you shift your balance to going, how do I absolutely control what I can control the best way I can and limit that, but focus that, give that the fierce force of your gaze and then go, how do I seek to be as influential as I can? You know, perhaps not as an influencer, which is a an irritating concept often, but in a just truly genuine, I seek I seek to spread and be a curve bender. Then I think something powerful can happen. So, Michael, for those who want to learn more about you and your work, what's the best way? There's probably nobody at the end of this interview. They're like, "Who not is this true. rambling guy?" Not true. <laughs> well, look, if you want to know more about the new book, The Advice Trap, there's a website, theadvicetrap.com. Amongst other things, it's actually got a little questionnaire about which is your advice monster. There are three, tell it, save it, and control it. And if you'd like to go a little deeper into that, there's a questionnaire, five minutes to do, that can tell you more about which which is your advice monster. To find out more about me, mbs.works is the kind of the hub website. There's a program there called the year of living brilliantly 
absolutely free, 52 amazing teachers, 52 videos over 52 weeks. It's really a cool curation of some amazing teachers. So that might be interesting for people. And then on Instagram, uh, MBS underscore works. And you can follow me on LinkedIn as well. My connections are all filled up, but you can certainly follow me on LinkedIn and uh, stay connected to me there. Michael, great to have you on the Curvebenders podcast. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for your insights. And and for the audience, I can't recommend Advice Trap, and I need to practice it a little bit more often. But <laughs> it, is a, it is a highly, highly intriguing look at exactly what Michael just talked about, which is how do we all create more time, more space for that inquiry? versus uh, jumping in with action and advice and recommendations, all the things we tend to do. So thanks for being our guest. Man, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you've listened to the Curvebenders podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curvebenders book on why strategic relationships will power your nonlinear growth in the future of work. This will be book number 11 with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, great interviews like the one you heard today. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the members of our NOR forum community. So go to norgroup.com slash forum and check out the Curve Benders thread for more details. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curvebenders podcast with MBS. What a lovely man. He's funny. He's incredibly thoughtful. And I so admire how he shows up in every interaction. Three comments Michael made during our interview really resonated with me. I love that notion of advice-driven versus curiosity-led, the box of crayons kind of theme and focus. And how amazing would it be? And I'm actually trying to practice more myself if – you're a leader, if you're in the ideas business, if you find yourself giving out advice a little more often than maybe you should, how brilliant would it be if you invited others to really spend a few more minutes in that space and curiosity? Number two, I love his comment about why if you realize your you know advice doesn't always work, you're not solving the right problem, the advice isn't as good as you think it is, and it's the wrong act of leadership in that moment. Very easy. I learned this with my kids. Very easy to tell them what to do. Tell other people what to do. Here's what I think. Much more of a servant leader profile to ask, what do you think? And how would you approach that? And what do you think is the best way to do that? And I think those are all in that curiosity-led space. Last but not least, he talked about the three elements in the future of coaching. So again, if you're a manager, if you're a leader, if you're a coach, how can you automate opportunities to extract insights? How can you really support others to take action? And that action is what creates impact. If you infuse inquiry, if you infuse, this is my take, exploration and experimentation in that mix, it could be really, really powerful. Don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles. So check out uh, our blog, norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com slash blog. Thank you. 
I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curvebenders podcast. I want to keep producing great content, most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurvebendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.